This is Michael F. Schein, author of The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you're in, send me a connection invite on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Speaking of LinkedIn, this episode is sponsored by LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. Every marketing campaign starts with one simple question. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? And the answer is LinkedIn, where business gets done. To get a $100 advertising credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign, visit linkedin.com slash Marketing book, linkedin.com slash marketing book. Terms and conditions apply. I'll mention more about that in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show, shall we? Today, we welcome Michael F. Shine to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Hype Handbook 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers, published by McGraw Hill. Michael F. Shine is a writer, speaker, business owner, and hype artist. He's the founder and president of Microfame Media, a marketing agency that specializes in making idea-based companies famous in their fields. Some of his clients have included eBay, Magento, Rico, LinkedIn, Citrix, and his alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, Go Quakers. His writing has appeared in Fortune Forbes, Psychology Today, and Huffington Post, and he is a speaker for international audiences spanning from the northeastern United States where he lives to the southeastern coast of China. And interesting fact, he once started a rock band that later performed on national TV at Harlem's Apollo Theater where he was booed off stage. Michael, congratulations on the Hype Handbook and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. That was quite the introduction. And I especially liked the uh, shout out to the Quakers. I was a big uh, Quakers basketball fan, all the while realizing that that is the worst name for a sports team ever, a pacifist religious sect. Religious sect. So, uh, but, it, but it worked for us. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Uh, just last week, I interviewed one of your fellow alums, Jim Gilmore, co-author of The Experience Economy, and gosh, this you're the, you're the fourth pin grad, and I've interviewed two professors there, uh, uh, Jonah Berger and uh, Peter Fader, so I'm kind of working my way down the hall and uh, picking up, and I think was, uh, there have been more guests with Stanford degrees than any other school, but I think they better start watching out. I think the Penn Mafia <laughs> is starting to, to catch up with them. Yeah. Good to hear. Go Quakers. Yes. So, uh, now, why were you booed off the stage? Was it the music or the venue or what what happened there? I, I, I have to know. That wasn't included in the book. 
Yeah, all, all of it, really. I mean, in fairness to me and us, I knew that our band would be most likely booed off, which was half the reason we did it. We were like this glam punk kind of screamy sort of band. And the Apollo Theater is the Apollo Theater. You know, it's James Brown and Michael Jackson and all of that. So yeah. I figured if we were going to go out, we should go out with a bang. I mean, part of the reason we did it was to get the notoriety of being booed off. And, <laughs> and it worked. Oh, I see. So uh, early indication of the uh, the hype. But I should say, that, now this was a rock band. I did my homework. Jimi Hendrix once performed at the Apollo Theater. So, I mean, you know, rock and roll originally is African-American music. People forget that. Mm -hmm. It most certainly was not um, the norm at the Apollo Theater by the time we played there. Right, right. So now... In the introduction, I mentioned that you are Michael F. Shine, and there's, I believe, another author named Michael Shine, and uh, we just want to make sure that we're clear that when uh, the listeners are looking for you, it's Michael F. Shine. And I've had to do this actually once before, where I interviewed an author, and he was he said, yeah, we really need to use my middle initial as well, and we did. And then afterwards, I I was looking up his Twitter handle and you know to in, in producing the uh, the show, and it turned out there was a porn star with the exact same name. And that's why he it's wanted hilarious. to have that middle initial. And I'm not saying the other Michael Shine is a porn star, but I have a feeling a lot of listeners are right now pulling off the road and uh, Googling to check. So <laughs> this book, uh, it's, it, was, it was, you are, sir, a fantastic writer. And I hope this is not your last book. This was a joy to read. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And how can you not like a book that covers some of the biggest characters and, and colorful organizations and things in history, such as Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Kim Jong-il, Joseph Goebbels, Louis Farrakhan, Gary Vaynerchuk, Tim Ferriss, Bernie Madoff, Johnny Rotten, Andy Warhol, the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, and even a the Church of Scientology. I mean, you just are all over the waterfront, which is why I think it added to the... Um, the uh, enjoyment of reading it, but also I was familiar with uh, almost all the people that you mentioned. Actually, that's there were some I'd never heard of, and I I was quickly going into Wikipedia to read about these people. But it was a real uh, kind of an adventure to uh, read, and uh, I think uh, the readers are going to enjoy it. And as a matter of fact, I posted a picture of the book on LinkedIn uh, a few days ago. <laughs> I've already heard from some listeners who said, oh, I've already bought it. I'm already reading it. I'm loving it. So uh, I want to start with uh, an excerpt, and it's a little bit longer than I normally read, but it is fantastic. And then we are going to reveal maybe a few secrets, okay? That sounds great. So it's from the introduction, and the subhead says, what is hype, really? When people say that something is all hype, they usually mean it's devoid of substance, a phenomenon that owes any attention it gets to a crafty manipulator working behind the scenes to make it look far more attractive than it really is. Hype is trivial. Hype is distracting. Hype is empty. At worst, hype is downright sinister. But in reality, when handled with care, hype can be one of the most beneficial forces in existence. Hype is the practice of generating an intense emotional reaction from a large number of people to achieve a specific outcome. Cult leaders, propagandists, and other shameless self-promoters are naturals at this because they see human behavior more clearly than the rest of us. However, hype is not an inherently immoral force. It is simply a set of strategies, skills, and techniques. Throughout history, it has been used to enable both creation 
and destruction. According to common myths about success, making things happen requires iron will, single-minded vision, and tireless persistence. The truth is far more complicated. There have been many strong-willed visionary go-getters whose ideas never made it past the walls of their huts. Bringing an idea to life requires hype. While the great inventors, engineers, scientists, and builders who worked on connecting the American coasts by locomotive and putting human beings on the moon should certainly get some credit, it was the hype artists who got people to show up and buy in that were truly indispensable. With all that said, there is a good reason hype has acquired such a bad reputation over the years. Sociopaths, narcissists, con artists, and other Machiavellian types are the most natural hype artists. They see the world through clearer eyes than the rest of us. However, this does not mean hype is innately immoral. Much like a gene seeking to reproduce, hype is amoral, a phenomenon altogether indifferent to societal notions of good and bad. And like biological evolution, hype is a creative force. Hype is not a mystical power. It's not mass hypnosis or brainwashing. At the same time, it is not just another word for persuasion or sales. To be a hype artist is to interact with people based on how they really act rather than how they say or think they do. For those of us who want to do right by people and do what we can to make the world a little better, the trick is to selectively borrow those tactics and stunts from history's most effective attention-getters while leaving the unethical parts aside. Is this difficult? Sure it is. Is it worth it? Without a doubt. Over the last few years, I've watched so many people with great ideas, ideas that could truly make the world a better place, fall short or get left behind because they didn't recognize the truth about what it takes to get the word out about what they were doing and get people whipped up into a frenzy about it. At my agency, Microfame Media, our express purpose is to apply the principles of hype to draw attention to projects with big ideas we believe are improving people's lives. At a certain point, however, it began to dawn on me that even though I was proud of what my agency had accomplished for our clients, these strategies were too powerful to remain restricted to only those who happened to hire us. Today, success has become more dependent than ever before on the ability to mold perception. It became my mission to make sure those committed to making real contributions to the world have the same shot as those who are driven only by ruthless self-interest. Setting this balance right is the reason I wrote the book you're holding in your hands. The purpose of the Hype Handbook is to allow well-meaning people to achieve their personal and professional ambitions. The book provides a success template that readers can use no matter their temperament, budget, or background, or even level of natural ability. I've read hundreds of books, studied stacks of academic papers, and conducted countless interviews and experiments to get to the heart of what hype is all about and how it works. From this intensive study of the world's most effective boundary breakers and mischief makers, I've distilled 12 fundamental strategies that readers can use to bring into existence the reality they desire most. So, Michael F. Shine, how did you become a professional hype artist, and why do you think listeners should become one as well? So, unlike, I'm assuming, a lot of the other very great writers that you have on your show— I never wanted to be in business. I I was a little bit allergic to the idea. I mean, I wanted to do something artsy. I wanted to be a novelist or, as we talked about before, play in bands and things like that. And I tried my hand at that. And um, although I didn't become a bona fide rock star, we did much better than most people ever thought we would. You know, we were on TV. We were on the cover of the New York press. We had a big following. And the way that 
Um, what was the name of the band? We were called The Act. And it, 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 there's very little about us online, weirdly enough, because it was like right before the the internet was really the way you promoted yourself, you know, but, but um, it, it, at the time, I, I think a lot of the reason that we got the attention that we did was, uh, you know, our music was fine. I think we had good songs, but I'm no great singer or guitar player. We, we um, hyped ourselves up and we never thought of it as marketing, but um, you know, we had a song called Ash Wednesday and I used to dress like a nun and all the kids would pray along with us. So that got attention and, and made people angry. Um, mm-hmm. We would put signs up that said, you know, Dave Matthews must die, you know, which was a, <laughs> you know, things like that. So, and we got a lot of attention. So um, when that didn't ultimately work out on the scale I wanted to, I went and I got a job and I became a business person and I sort of shed that past. And I worked at a corporation um, and eventually I couldn't take it anymore. And I became... Um, a corporate or not a corporate, a, a freelance copywriter. And at that time, I, I had had that old part of me sort of burned out of me. And I thought that I needed to sell my services by quote unquote marketing myself. So I read, you know, marketing books and took courses and I learned things. I learned a lot about the tools, but for some reason I could not get people to buy from me. I was really, really ineffective. And I started to burn through my savings and it, and and it was it was scary it was rough i thought i was going to have to fold up you know um shop until i i had this revelation that i used to be good at marketing but i never thought of it as marketing it was kind of like a benevolent mischief it was taking advantage of people's desire to laugh to be have a transcendent experience to you know uh pick fights with people and get them worked up into a frenzy so i said what if i started to do that uh, for my own, this different career, but do it in an ethical way. Not that we were ever unethical, but you know, it, it was very important to me that um, I proved that this could be done every bit as ethically as traditional marketing and sales. And I started to take that approach, and it started to work. I, I built up a pretty successful freelance uh, copywriting practice, and then people wanted the marketing. Uh, which I didn't call hype at the time. I just called marketing, but it was my way of marketing. They wanted that more than the writing. And I, and I, and that led to the agency. So I started seeing that everybody was starting with the tools. You know, people would say, I, I want to learn how to market myself. And they would like, the, 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 the extreme example of this is I've seen more than once companies pay a lot of money for, uh, you know, HubSpot, which is a great tool, but they somehow assumed that if they bought HubSpot, their marketing problems would be solved. And I just kept seeing this over and over again. And then I would see people who were sort of malicious actors, just understanding ancient principles of human psychology that got people to just follow them everywhere they wanted to go that didn't depend on any specific marketing technique or tool. And I just, it just became really important to me to, 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 to shift people's understanding of what it means to drive attention to the great work that you're doing, that it's, that the tools come second, just the way that you don't start with hammer and nails. You start with a blueprint. You have to start with mass psychology, which I call hype. And that just became sort of a driving motivation for me. Amen. I agree completely. I see that all the time. We're a HubSpot partner. and People think if they just buy a tool that all their dreams will come true. And of course, 
the the tools should come last. First should right. come the people, uh, and then the processes you already have. The tools should only be added if they are uh, enhancing what your what your people and the process you're already following. But it's the same principle I see, where people think that if they just buy a gym membership in January, right, they're going to get in shape. The problem is they actually have to go to the gym. <laughs> they have to do. They have to do the work and actually and work out the right way. Yes, so and work out. I, the, yes, with, with marketers, I see people doing the work, but they don't know what work to do. It's kind of like if you go to the gym. I saw a woman at the gym once at the JCC gym, an older lady, having an entire conversation on her cell phone using like a five pound dumbbell, just sort of slinging it back and forth as she talked on the phone. You know, and I'm like, she thinks she's working out right now. Yes, or it's the guys that go to the athletic club and they just sit in the steam room or the sauna and right. work up a sweat and then think that they've worked out. So, right. yeah. Well, let's let's get into some of these secrets and let's start with the great unifier, hatred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you mentioned that. Why does picking fights work so well? Yeah, so th- there's been a lot of research on this and this is something that's probably the most important hype strategy in the book. It's sort of the the one that all the rest of them revolve around. And it's the one that people resist the most. They just don't want it to be true. And as a result, they look for reasons why it's not true. But the idea is that human beings, even the best among us, are much more attracted to adversarial dynamics, to, to um, negativity, to lines in the sand than we are to positivity. And um, there, 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 this is just, this is a fact. Um, this is not a, a theory. There's been a lot of research on this and that doesn't mean that you have to be a hateful person. It means that if you frame something as a battle or a war or a, a, a bold stand, it becomes much more contagious and much more attractive. And it, to, to get into the, the science or the history of it a little bit there. And I found this fascinating. There, there was a, an archeologist who, um, you know, worked with an anthropology team and found an, a, uh, an alcove on the coast of South Africa and pretty much discovered that that's where all of the ancestors of every, uh, the ancestors of every human being alive today, all 8 billion human beings comes from this alcove. So there was this climate change event in the prehistoric, you know, era and almost every homo sapiens died. And this one group retreated to this area on the coast of Africa, the southern coast of Africa and found this dense bed of shellfish. So the thing about shellfish is that if you find a really dense bed of shellfish at that time, you don't have to hunt, you don't have to gather. It's very high calorie. It's easy to get. So the only thing keeping people from getting these shellfish were other people. So there were these tribes that were almost arbitrary, and there were a small number of them. You know, everyone was African. Everyone was pr- pretty much you know physiologically the same. So those humans that survived were the ones who simultaneously were somehow wired to you know, to really bond with and cooperate to people they perceived as being like them, note the word perceived, and simultaneously hate and fight against those who they perceive um, as not being like them. Who wanted to get the access to the fish? Because of that. Because if you, let's say that you, you just saw every person as the same. 
and someone from the other tribe comes over and you're like, yeah, have some of my fish. Then your tribe who shares with you doesn't get the shellfish. But if you say, you know what, we've got 12 people in this tribe. We have enough for the 12. Those people over there who look pretty much the same as us, us, but they have a, have a stoop in their walk differently, or they live in the different side of the alcove. They're horrible people. They're the enemy. And you drive them out. Now, suddenly your tribe has, has all the shellfish, right? So which one is going to survive? And it, and it was that, the people who had that dynamic. So, you know, it's not just about hating people. It's about, it's about loving and worshiping your own tribe and being against those who you perceive as not being your tribe. And every human on earth has inherited that characteristic. So it does, you know, it doesn't have to be racism or hatred. It can be hatred of an idea. You know, um, I, I, you know, I'm a member of the, um, simple project management believers and i'm against all the overly complex project management believers it can be that brass tacks mm-hmm. but it but it works like crazy yeah and it reminds me of a buddy of mine who's a lifelong cincinnati Bengals fan and i don't think he likes the Bengals so much as he just loves hating the pittsburgh steelers totally <laughs> i mean think jerry seinfeld had a funny bit on this where he said you know the, the new york giants play in new jersey the, the, the players don't live in New York, typically. They have houses, you know, in Connecticut. You're voting, you're rooting for a uniform. <laughs> he called it, um, you're rooting for laundry. You're rooting for laundry, <laughs> right. right. You're rooting for laundry. And but, then they but, change every year anyway. The, they the change team. players every year. But, but think about real sports fans. It ruins their week if their team doesn't win. They're yeah. not on the field. It makes no sense. Yeah, and you see it in politics, and uh, you see totally. it where uh, businesses will, you know, sort of declare war on on an enemy or an, an idea out there, and it, it appeals to certain people. Any advice on how to pick the right enemy? There's really two ways you can do this. So I, I want to make the point that this doesn't mean to be a troll. That's the very unsophisticated and less you um, actually less effective way. Going out there and just like hammering people about the way they talk or their looks or their attitude on Twitter or whatever, that's not going to do it for you. Was talking to me, uh, what prompted you to want to tell people not to be a troll? Because that's okay. No, of course, of course. (laughs) No. Yeah. So, (laughs) but, um, yeah, you know, I, I really think it's about taking a bold stance. So I'm going to go back to that project management example because that seemed pretty random, but that actually was bare, you know, that came, it's an example I use in the book. And it's, oh, it's with 37 signals? 37 signals, yeah. yeah. So, you know, project management software, right? And this audience knows about it probably more than a lot of the audiences I, I speak to, but it, it's a, a piece of software that helps you manage the many pieces of what it takes to get something done in business, right? So the the different workflows, the different tasks that people have to do, whatever. And for years and years and years, the the just gospel, the unquestioned gospel of project the project management world is was you know if a client asks you to build in a feature, build it in. 
because that means other people will want the same feature. And why wouldn't you want a piece of software that did more rather than less? So, mm-hmm. so you got these very, very robust softwares. So the guys who built um, Basecamp, which is for 37 Signals was the name of their uh, company, and then they changed it to Basecamp. But they built this project management tool, Basecamp, that does like five things. It's extremely simple and does them all really well. And they didn't just go out. Now, what they could have done is gone out and say, hey, everybody, check out our new project management software. It's simple to use, easy to use. You know, that would have been a a positive way of selling what they did. Mm -hmm. What they did is they went on the warpath against companies who had a philosophy of overcomplexity in business. So they wrote a book called Rework that basically said, fire your workaholics. If people are working six days a week, then they have poor systems and that shows that they're inefficient. Uh, they talk about, you know, that, that just they just constantly hammered the corporate culture of overcomplexity and overwork. And the the ultimate result was, well, we happen to produce a tool that lets you fix that problem. When you talk to people about Basecamp, it's not like, oh, I chose this tool because it's a good tool. It's like a religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, people worship these guys and they worship the tool and it's like a mini cult. And that's because they created this adversarial dynamic and because the product's good, but there are a lot of good products. You don't see that with Salesforce. No, <laughs> but it's, it's Salesforce also isn't very uh, simple. Uh, it has no, other- but you don't see that. I mean, Salesforce has done well for other reasons because they were the yeah. first cloud-based, you know, platform. But you don't see people like I'm a Salesforce user. You know, I mean, no one is not proud a lot of tattoos a- that say Salesforce. Right, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. Let's pretend for a moment that you're about to launch a campaign. It tested well. Your entire team is happy. Everything is going according to plan, except for that one thought in the back of your head. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? The answer is LinkedIn. Because when you market on LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to do business. And that means your advertising campaign will work as hard as it can as soon as you launch it. Over 62 million decision makers are on LinkedIn. And that's just one of the many reasons why more than 78% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as the most effective social media platform at helping their organization achieve specific objectives. LinkedIn has tools for branding and lead generation. Not only can you target and reach a professional audience down to their job title, company name, and location, but you can engage people you already know based on who's visited your site or who you've contacted in the past. And to make this ridiculously easy to try, LinkedIn is giving Marketing Book Podcast listeners a $100 advertising credit toward their first LinkedIn campaign. Visit linkedin.com slash marketing book, linkedin.com slash marketing book. Terms and conditions apply. Let's move on. I want to read a quote that mentions Edward Bernays, who is the Austrian-born nephew of Sigmund Freud and father of, of public relations. A number of listeners may have heard of him. You talk about some of his uh, great success in uh, you know the earlier part of the 20th century. Let me just go to that page here. And you write, uh, a lot of advice on marketing, promotion, and sales focuses on painstakingly building a following person by person. Bernays, on the other hand, understood that the appearance of a spontaneous grassroots following is far more important 
than whether it actually happens that way. Where he found real power was in identifying the individuals or institutions that had the most sway with the audiences and markets he needed to reach, and then getting these individuals and institutions to want to advocate products, causes, messages, or ideas on his behalf. So, can you explain this uh, piggybacking principle of, of creating your own secret society? Yeah. So first of all, Edward Bernays is so fascinating. This is a guy who he called himself the father of PR because he invented the term public relations. And in fact, a funny little trivia uh, tidbit is that before he renamed it public relations, he called it propaganda. But then the uh, world wars gave that kind of a nasty uh, tone. So he changed it to public relations. So for all you PR people out there, it's, you know. Edward Bernays. And you know what else? Yeah. a rabbit hole. See what your book did? <laughs> I was constantly going <laughs> off. His grandnephew was one of the co-founders of Netflix. I did not know that. Just amazing. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, this guy had more of an influence on American society and possibly world society than 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 most people. And very few people um you know do know who he is. He, there was a documentary about him recently that put him into the limelight a little bit more. But you know, he's responsible for um, getting rid of the taboo on women smoking. So women just didn't smoke before the 20s. And if they did, it was considered very, very low class or whatever. And and he um, organized a march. It was during the time of the suffragettes called the Torches for Liberty, where he had women showing their independence by smoking. And they, it, it, you know, it was on, verha- on, on behalf of Lucky Strike. So th- that was his thing. Um, he had a, uh, he basically engineered the coup uh, of Guatemala on behalf of the United Fruit Company because they weren't getting preferred treatment <laughs> for banana exports. Just amazing. Yeah. And um, my favorite one, which illustrates this principle. So, um, you know, before the 20s, people did not, Americans did not typically eat bacon for breakfast. That's, you know, we think of that as the quintessential American thing, bacon and eggs, but but that that's, you know, 100 years old. Um, as a, as a tradition. And uh, so that was due to Edward Bernays. So he um, had beech nut as a client, which was a major pork producer, and he wanted to get people to consume more bacon. And so he had a doctor that he knew who was probably in his pocket in some way. And, and again, Edward Bernays was not a very up and up character. He did whatever it took, but you can still learn from him. But anyway, he he um, asked this doctor who was very, very connected and influential to write a letter about a quote unquote study that said that bacon is the perfect health breakfast food because it replaces the energy that you lose during sleep. So this guy sent this letter to 5000 physicians. So before long, every physician in America was uh, recommending recommending breakfast, you know, bacon for breakfast to their patients. So, and a tradition was born. So, so the lesson here is not to lie and fake studies. I, that is not what I want you to take away from this. Right. You know? that, and that was made very clear in your introduction. This is, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we need more good, good ideas and good folks uh, using these principles. However, what Edward Bernays realized is that people, that the perception needs to exist that a new fad, a new trend, a new movement, a new massive rush of sales is happening on a grassroots level. So, you know, as it appeared to all of these new bacon consumers, they didn't know that all of their friends and neighbors were getting the same advice for, you know, about about breakfast. I mean, Doc, appointments are private. So what would happen was more and more people were just like eating bacon, 
right? But if Edward Bernays, and, and eventually it became a phenomenon, it looked like a grassroots swell. But what he was doing was he had spent a lot of time beneath the surface nurturing key ties. I call them human pressure points. People that if they pull one or two strings can get a, get a massive result. And that's really where the success came from. So, you know, you see all these people today and they're, and they're just kind of obsessed with building a following person by person. And I see it now, you know, Clubhouse, which is the new social media tool, maybe the greatest social media tool of all time. I have no idea, but I just find it really funny as a student of this stuff to watch everyone flock to this thing. You know, they're like, okay, it's not Instagram anymore. We, we've just been working for three years on building a million fans on Instagram and failed at that. Let's do it on Clubhouse. That's going to fix our problems. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the, the people who are really, really successful, they'll spend 80% of their time doing favors for getting to know, getting access to, bonding with, five people who have massive social media followings, for example. And then when they have their new product come out, they'll say, hey, listen, can you do me a favor? And it's like asking your friend to do a favor. They don't say do me a favor because I helped you. But the unspoken sort of word there is that we scratch each other's backs. And I call that build a secret society because people always used to say or still do in business, it's who you know, it's the old boys network. Well, you can create your own old boys network or old girls network. You know, there's a, there are ways to do that, which we can, you know, go into as much detail. Yeah, you can leverage that sense of reciprocity. And a lot of what uh, you're talking about there also overlays nicely with many of the principles of influencer marketing. Absolutely. In a certain way, Edward Bernays was uh, very good at influencer marketing before it was called uh, influencer marketing. But a lot of that influencer marketing is about not paying someone to retweet (laughs) something. It's building a long-term relationship with someone and often where you're creating uh, content with them. I do want to. I do want to inter- interject the subtle difference between what people often refer to as influencer marketing, and I know not everybody, but when you hear influencer marketing, there's this idea that instead of building a grassroots following, you on the surface make friendships with you know the teens in in the hype house. Ironically, that's what the big influencer house is called, and those people will will you know spread the word about you, whereas. I, that's what Edward Bernays was doing, but the subtle difference is that he was really focused on the people who had influence. Um, it, it was about making, still making it seem like these fads were happening organically. That's the part. Sometimes people are so overt with their influencer marketing that it's very clear what they're doing. They show their hand a little. You are much. correct, and that is why uh, there's still big uh, hesitation. Uh, as it relates to influencer marketing, but when it's done right and honestly, when there's a, it works, it can work very well, very ethically no and, and very uh, cost effective. But I think it's really, yeah, you're right. It's, it's tarnished and uh, well, come on, it has the word marketing. So you know, it's got hey, to be. ruin everything. That's yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so we've talked about bacon, but I want to move on and talk about uh, milk and meat. Uh, you, <laughs> you uh, write that once you've sparked attraction, the best way to get people to do what you want them to do is to have them get themselves there in steps so small that they don't even know it's happening. Explain that that concept of, of milk before meat. I was not aware of it, and uh, it also had big implications for sales where you, you will frighten people. And even though you talked about the history of, uh, I think it was Christianity, where there were certain things that were introduced, didn't all come at once. 
Yeah, so this is specifically a, a strategy that you should really explore and use if your ideas are truly new. So, you know, there, there's really two kinds of projects and businesses. One type of project in business is in a very crowded space. And even though the thing is good, it's kind of like everybody else's. And that's okay. Let's say you're a consultant or, or a business coach who you get good results, but you know, you're really not doing anything that unique, you know, and there's a place for that. In that case, you have to really think about setting yourselves apart. So go big, be dramatic, be theatrical. But if you've got a product, a service, an idea that's really new, you know, and that's what you think your competitive advantage is. This thing is a different way of doing things. A lot of times we think that's enough to make us successful. And what we what we fail to consider is that human beings are really wired to reject big changes, right? And mm -hmm. that makes sense in nature. I mean, if you if you saw, uh, I don't know, the, the forest slowly turning from green to yellow to orange really slowly over three months, that's fall. But if you see things immediately turn orange, that's a fire, right? So <laughs> ra ra radical change, quick change is not usually a good sign, yes. despite all these things about how great change is, right? So if you want to get someone to embrace something new, the good news is even though our brains do and, and I'm talking on a biological level. Our, our our adrenaline kicks up. I mean, we all kinds of things happen when change is too rapid. We also have a threshold in our brains that we literally can't perceive changes. You can have the same change and break it up into little steps, and people will just embrace each one of those steps. And before they know it, they're they've got a whole new identity. And cults use this all the time, you know. So um, Scientology. I don't. I mean, you could call them a cult or a religion, whatever you want to call it. But um, they believe that aliens live on the lip of a volcano and infect our minds. But they never introduce that in the earliest stage. They say, you know, um, we have a really good method of um, personal growth, personal development, and their stuff kind of looks like what you would see in a psychologist's office or 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 in you know a Tony Robbins seminar. It's very you know it's mm -hmm. it's it's in the language of positive thinking and, and personal growth, which we're very used to. A and only later do they introduce the more unusual stuff, and they do it in stages. So so the Christianity example is what a lot of people don't realize is that for like. 20 or 30 years after Jesus died, Christianity almost failed. It was, um, even when they were being persecuted, they, 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 there were about, I don't know, a couple dozen Christians. They called themselves the way, and it was Jewish. It was a Jewish faith. So there were many Jewish sects then, and they were just another one of them. I mean, they ate kosher. They, um, you know, they circumcised their sons, which at the time was, you know, in the dominant Roman culture considered abhorrent. You know, they didn't shave their faces. You know, Orthodox Judaism is, is pretty strict. So uh, St. Paul, who, you know, Paul of Tarsus came in and he was a Roman citizen and he grew up in Tarsus, which was a city that um, it was very Roman. It wasn't like Jerusalem. So he was Jewish, but he grew up in a very Roman city. And he's responsible for the Christian religion. He's the person who made it spread. And the way he would do that, you know, Sunday school students know part of it. They know that he told people, don't follow the law. It's about your faith in Jesus. And what that meant was you didn't have to circumcise your sons. You didn't have to eat kosher. 
at the same time, he did other more subtle things. So there was um, a religion in ancient Rome that was uh, very popular called uh, Mithraism. And there was a thing about redemption from blood. They had a, a ceremony where you would sit under a, a, a slaughtered bull and blood would run down. And that was how you became redeemed. And that was not most historians you know, who, who are secular historians believe that that was not a feature of the original Christianity. And saw, and Paul introduced that. So by wrapping this very strange, exotic religion in the wrapping paper of things that Romans were very familiar with, it became digestible and they could embrace the features of it that, you know, were different. And we all know what happened with Rome and Christianity in Europe, right? So that was a good strategy. Yeah, <laughs> seems to have worked out pretty well. Yeah. There's a part in here that was so uh, applicable for the uh, people in sales, but also marketing, where you write, new sales are the lifeblood of every business. The revenue they generate keeps a company running. For this reason, many of us push to get to the end of the sales process in as short a time as possible. The irony is that it is precisely this rush to close deals that often causes us to lose them. The decision to part with a big chunk of money is the kind of change that terrified our prehistoric ancestors. To counteract this programming, focus on collecting small yeses instead. And I've often heard about how, you know, if you can slow down the sales process, it, uh, it, it works well. So let's move on and talk about being a trickster. And uh, I must say that I thought, uh-oh, he's going to write about me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I want to read this uh, this one excerpt about Abby Hoffman. Oh, yeah. Abby Hoffman was a counterculture anti-war protester of the 60s variety who co-founded a new youth cultural movement he called the Yippies, which he positioned as the logical evolution from hippiedom. He organized a gathering in Washington, D.C., where a crowd of self-proclaimed freaks attempted to levitate the Pentagon with their minds. He jumped up on stage during the Who's set at Woodstock, only to receive a kick in the backside from guitarist Pete Townsend. <laughs> Each of these stunts garnered Hoffman and his movement massive amounts of press. Each of these stunts inspired imitators. Each of these stunts seemed like real news, and each of these stunts was concocted from the heads of Hoffman and his collaborators. In describing his approach, Hoffman said, if you don't like the news, why not go out and make your own? So explain this concept of, of being a trickster. So what I, what I want to preface this with is that this is when we teach this in, in talks and things like that, this is the one next to the make war not love principle that the most people are ready to reject. So mm, um, Interesting. But, yeah, because I think people, you know, the idea is that in traditional business, like, it's like, okay, if you're uh, Abby Hoffman, the yippie, or if you're, gosh, I don't know, a rock manager or or whatever, yeah, that's theater, that's craziness, you can be a trickster. But if you're a, uh, if you're running enterprise technology software, how, how, how the heck can I be a trickster, right? So I want to say that there's still a place for this strategy and like everything else, it has to be done strategically. So the reason I use the term trickster is that every culture on earth, practically every culture on earth, you know, has a mythological character 
called the the trickster. And a lot of us know this from Marvel movies now. You know, the Norse mythology had Loki, who they turned into a, a Marvel character. But you know, a lot a lot of other cultures have this figure, and it's somebody who it's a god who isn't as powerful as the other gods, but who uses pranks basically to um, throw things into disarray. But in doing so, and here's the part that people miss. They, they 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 add color to the world and usually create art. So like Hermes, who's the trickster god of ancient Greece, is also the person who created the lyre, which is the source of all music in Greek mythology. So he created music. So so why is this important? Because first of all, being a trickster and adding a little bit of what I call benevolent to even the most sort of mundane or brass tax business practices is not just a way of it, it is not 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 ju- just it is not a, a synonym for conning people it is adding color and making people see the world in a different way so that they can take part in whatever creative activity you're doing and business is a creative activity The other, though, important thing is that this is a technique for people who don't have power, and it should be used sparingly until you're ready to put it aside. So I'm going to talk about one of your past guests who I'm a big fan of, and that's Ryan Holiday, right? Mm, So when you hear Ryan Holiday speak now, and I've heard him on your show, and and caveat, I'm a huge fan of his. Oh, me too. Yeah. I think he's one of the smartest and most real – you know, guys out there today doing this kind of work. Um, so, so take all of this. This is all admiration. What I'm about to say, he, I, I hear him on your show and on every show, and he, he's, he's, he's really a a serious guy, right? Yes. Like, like you know, he doesn't crack a lot of jokes. He he quotes from ancient philosophy. He has a rigor to what he expects from people. You know, he wants people to live this upright life. And it's good stuff. However, if you look at his early career, this is a guy who was a 21-year-old head of American Apparel who helped that company get famous. Their marketing. By, yeah, but by get uh, yeah, head of marketing by getting a porn star, Sasha Gray, to pose with socks for a clothing ad. This was a guy who got Tucker Max his movie, uh, you know, the movie based on I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell, notoriety by going out in the middle of the night and spray painting anti-Tucker Max feminist graffiti on a billboard that he paid for and then anonymously calling in tips that this was happening, right? So why did how, – how is this the same person? Well, what he did is he was a young guy. He had no power. He had no connections. So as as such, he couldn't use the regular channels to rise to the top. So he became a trickster. He did pranks, but they were pranks that were fun and funny and made people think. And he helped his clients doing that. But at a certain point, he no longer wanted to be perceived at that guy. He was ready to pivot because he had mainstream attention. So he did the most brilliant thing. He writes a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying. Which says, listen, well, con- I repent- confessions of a media mani- manipulator. of a media manipulator, exactly. <laughs> and he says, I repent, and re- my, uh, you know, I am disgusted with my own self for doing what I did. So I'm going to write a book telling you exactly how I did it. But I wink, wink, want you to use it for good. And that book served as a break. He shifted from that point 
to becoming this elder statesman. So the trick is to know when to no longer be a trickster. You know, Dennis Rodman got fit. He, he, he was dating Madonna and Madonna told him how to market himself and it made him, you know, it colored his hair and acted crazy and that helped him for a while, but he didn't know when to pivot. And as a result, he's a clown and he goes to North Korea, right? You got to know when to shift. Yes, this episode we'll keep coming back to porn and North Korean dictators. Uh, yeah, we've talked a couple a couple times about the North Korea. Yeah, that's true. I just used a porn example and a North Korean dictator example, as did you. Yes. So, is that yeah. the norm for for this show? I don't. Uh, think well, it's so. what I aspire to, but I'm yeah. not allowed to often mention those kinds of things because uh, they're not in the books. Yeah. I don't know. I'm shifting you to a new uh, a new era. It's the <laughs> I por- appreciate that. porno-centric marketing uh, library. And actually, yeah. there's another thing in your book, uh, a group called Pussy Riot, and it's we're not true. really going to talk about them, but I did want to say that word. I had thought it was a, a band of uh, misbehaving cats, but apparently it really was an activist group and band uh, in Russia causing a lot That's of trouble true. for um, Vladimir Putin. It's uh, very funny. I have an anecdote that, that has nothing to do with marketing, but it's you, you got to hear it, and I, I think they'll, they'll, they'll find it funny. I had, I had a spot on a radio show when I was in college, and you weren't allowed to curse unless it was the name of the band. And there was this band that had the filthiest name. I'm not even going to say it now. And we would just constantly play that band, which was terrible. I'd be like, I just played a great song by blank and you know if you want to hear more songs by blank please call in to hear additional songs by blank so that was fun oh yes um you're only young (laughs) once but you can be immature forever exactly that's That's my my mantra as well yes that's my life's mission statement yeah Well, let's move on to uh, finding a void and, and, and filling it. I want to read this one quote. While dissatisfaction is the default human condition, it tends to be difficult for people to accept that their dissatisfaction springs from circumstances outside their control. As such, we constantly, albeit subconsciously, look for mechanisms, systems, and answers even when there are none. <clears throat> you go on to write a few pages later, Masters of Hype play with this intense human desire to control the uncontrollable. So explain how what's, what's at play here and uh, how it works uh, so well. I mean, to, you, you have Tim Ferriss as an example of one of the people that has leveraged this, uh, this it's found this seam. Well, listen, human beings are pattern-seeking machines. That's why we're the dominant species on Earth, right? I mean, we, we, we see a stick laying on the ground that nature created and a rock laying on the ground that nature created. And we say, Hmm, what if I stuck somehow attached that rock onto this stick and banged things with it? You know what I mean? And that becomes a hammer. So, so like human beings are really good at controlling their environment and, and, and making connections, but like any virtue, it can become a fault because we tend to think, that patterns can be found in a- anything and that control can be exerted over anything. So, um, you know, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who work really, really hard and do all the right things and they get sick or their business idea didn't work out or it was poor timing or a pandemic happens or whatever, right? So we have some control, but we have much less control than we think, but we hate that and we don't want to believe it. And so, there are just if you can give people something to help them feel more in control to keep coming back to and this is is similar to what i said before but it's very useful and sometimes these things are really good things so like the book seven habits of highly effective people 
it doesn't say here are some potential things that you could do if you want to make your life preferably, you know, better in most circumstances. It's like these are the seven things all highly effective people do. And if you do them, you will be highly effective. I mean, that's the implicit, you know, idea. And that's not really the case. It, it will make you more effective usually in most circumstances, depending on your personality and how your brain is set up, right? But that book was a, a multi-million dollar, you know, thing. Tim Ferriss is, is the master of this, right? Like his whole four-hour empire, his idea is that you can engineer everything. Like he has tools for titans. It's, the, it's this idea that if you look at the skills and tactics of powerful people and you know, people who do well, you can just, to a science, engineer this stuff and get the same results. And and that's, you know, who Tim Ferriss is. But as a result, people follow him. But most people who read his stuff, they, they might make some improvements, but they don't become Tim Ferriss. But Tim Ferriss keeps getting richer, you know? So <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Prophecy prophecy is an incredibly effective sales tactic. Right. <laughs> so yeah, you write, uh, when you pinpoint a void shared by multiple people, you gain the opportunity to exert incredible influence over them. And above that, you write, Ferris observed the deep lack of fulfillment on the part of the millions of white-collar employees spending countless hours in cubicle farms. As soon as he zeroed in on this, he saw his opportunity. He preached that there was no reason to live this way. He said that you could automate your work and live a fulfilling, semi-retired life for now and forever. <laughs> but and and yeah, yeah, but people don't really do that. But I guess uh, he's he's filling that that void. That well, and, and, and that's a great point that, you know, I, I didn't cover with, with this conversation. It's that every era has its own voids and they're often very different. You know, in, in the uh, civil war, a phenomenon called spiritualism, this idea that you could talk uh, to the dead, the way that you would talk to someone on, on a telegraph or, or, you know, which was really considered amazing at the time. So people thought you could talk to the spirits, but, but um, there was a void that was that, um, the Civil War was massively tragic for the United States. I mean, we lost more people in that war than any other war. And uh, almost every woman who was living in the country had lost a son, a husband, a nephew, whatever. So this desire to speak with people who were lost was really profound. And in our era, we are in this weird environment where there's a lot of financial insecurity, where people are working in this sort of cubicle environment, where we all feel this need to be great because of social media. And Tim Ferriss has recognized that and has given you a, a sort of a cure-all philosopher's stone to solve that. So, I, I mean, always be attuned to what what are the voids in your era? Where Where is there a common longing that a lot of people have in our world or in our era. And if you can give something um, to them that, that helps them solve that or feel like they're solving it, that goes a long way. Now, what I'm not saying is to don't sell garbage. Don't sell stuff that doesn't work. I mean, Tim Ferriss's stuff is good. You know what I mean? But it's aspirational. But it's aspirational. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's move on to a couple of these others because I can't like follow the news now quite the same as <laughs> before I read your book. Yeah. And you write that people 
can't resist the persuasive appeal of uh, flawed or fraudulent ideas when packaged in hard science and big data. Well, fraudulent ideas or soft ideas. They're not always fraudulent ideas. It's just ideas. Yeah, that's good. Could, soft. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they're ideas that are really good, but they're just common sense that if, you're, if your grandpa told you to them, you'd buy him a Coke. But you, you know slap what I mean? on some science or data that yeah. may not even be related to it and right. people just swallow it whole. Right. Right. That, that's it. I mean, you know, human, you know, back to the human brain to drop a little science on you. I'm going to use my same hype tactic, but, <laughs> you know, if, if you had to make decisions about every piece of stimuli that came into your viewpoint, you would, your head would blow up, right? I yeah. mean, we, we're, we, you know, so we use what's called heuristics, which are mental shortcuts. So if you see that the last five awesome doctors that you went to had diplomas on their wall and white shirts, I mean, white uh, coats. Then the next doctor you saw who had a diploma and a white coat, you would think they were, your gut would tell you that they were good, right? So um, a lot of times scientific lingo is shorthand for an expert, for someone who knows what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So if you hear someone just giving you common sense, oh, and it's also expertise is something you pay for, right? I mean, you can't get that for free. So if someone says to you, you know, you really need to love what you do and you should have a deep reason beyond money for doing right. what you do. And you say, well, thanks, Grandpa. You know, that's thank you for that great advice. And Simon Sinek says, start with why, because the neuroepinephrine in your brain and the this and the that, he uses very, you know, um, cortisol. It, it, cortisol and all this stuff. You're like, let me book you for a hundred fifty thousand dollars speaking engagement, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it, yeah, it, it, they, you know, in consulting, they call it ear candy and eye candy, charts and figures. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. Just today, and I'm not kidding, because I am a kidder. I saw something somebody posted on Facebook, some group, and it was about said studies show that Abraham Lincoln gave his wife syphilis, and. <laughs> Who's doing these studies? <laughs> I learned so much on the Facebook. But it, what was interesting was some people there were out of, oh, it was a civil it was a civil war group that I follow of this author. Huh. And Oh, you're a big military history guy. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so it was uh, it was kind of odd, obviously, but then the people were explaining like studies show that should tell you right there. <laughs> That is fraudulent. I mean, like, let, can we see the yeah. studies? What's you know? the study? You know, it's funny. Ever since I read, going back to our earlier conversation about the Edward Bernays Bacon study, mm-hmm. I've been so reluctant to trust studies without seeing the sources. Like, I'm a huge, I love coffee. And if it were up to me, I would drink 20 cups of coffee a day, <laughs> you know? And so I've been seeing these studies lately that, like, they, it literally said 25 cups of coffee a day is healthy. And my first gut reaction was like, awesome. That's so good. <laughs> and then I like, 40. yeah. And then I thought about it and I was like, who is commissioning this <laughs> study? I mean, really, I, you know, like I want to see who paid for that study because yeah. I, as much as I love coffee and as I think that one or two cups is good for you, the fact that I feel like I want to claw my skin off when I have five cups of coffee tells me that 25 cups is not healthy. So I want to see this study. Yes, and I think, optimistically, that more and more people are more suspicious That's of things like true. that. That's probably and, true. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's move on. Let's talk about drama. You write that there are two key facets of drama, which are tension and mystery. Tension and mystery. What should fledgling hype artists know about tension and mystery? 
Yeah, so I, I think when people think about hype at all, if they ever do, and when they think about um, you know hype artists in general, they think of overt theatricality. So they think of um, Tony Robbins with his firewalks and his and his you know screaming and his rock music and Amway and and you know rock concerts and this and that. However, most of us aren't going to do that, but we can take advantage. You know, the the original theater had no props and no sound and nothing. It had people on a stage and it was, it was based on storytelling principles. It was based on tension. So the idea that you, you want to create a little discomfort you, before you give a release, you want to sort of hold back and, and create kind of this dynamic of, um, they call it delicious tension, right? Like this idea that like, what's going to happen next? And then mystery, which is not laying it all out there on the table. So I think a couple of things, you know, you often see this idea now, especially in marketing, that you should always have a call to action. You should always put your information on stuff. So like, what's the point of putting an advertisement out if it doesn't say, click here to get X, Y, and Z? Or what's the point of putting a print ad out if it doesn't say www.com? blah, blah, blah.com, hashtag, whatever. However, if you look through history, there are so many examples of people holding back before they gave away the plot. You know, you know if, if you knew the ending of every play or movie, you wouldn't go. But we make that mistake in our, in our marketing all the time. So an example is in the 70s, um, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there were these posters that just suddenly appeared all over the city that said punk is coming. And this was before the the name punk was associated with a music genre. So people were like, what is punk? Punk is coming? Is that a, a jailhouse thing? Is that is something sinister in that? Well, that's weird. Punk is coming. And it was repeated and repeated and repeated. And before long, everyone was talking about this. What is punk? What is punk? And it turned out it was a new magazine that covered this newly emerging music that was coming up, the Talking Heads and the Ramones and all of this, and it ended up lending its name to the uh, to the genre, and and the magazine became very successful. So, before you just start slapping your calls to action all over everything, because that's what the last marketing tactics course or book yeah, like a sticker that would say punkmagazine.com. Yeah, <laughs> it, exactly. Yeah. Punk is coming. www.punkmagazine.com. <laughs> right, like that would have really lost its its allure. Right. So I'm not saying don't ever tell people where to find you and buy from you, but it's worth giving some thought to think a little more like like a theater director or a movie producer. How do you get people curious? How do you get people to wonder what's coming next? How do you get people to think of themselves as a character in the drama that you're inventing? And then when you give the big reveal, people aren't going to be able to resist it. Yeah. I just want to read this uh, a couple things from this uh, where you, the chapter about embracing theater and drama. You're right. As professionals, we often assume our efforts should be aimed at making people feel better, but the most magnetic professionals learn to seed the pleasure they deliver with doses of discomfort. And then you go on to write, regardless of their subject matter, these professional thought leaders invariably inject whatever constructive or inspirational messages they are there to convey with doses of doom. And then you write, all these sentiments serve to make you squirm before relieving the tension. 
And finally, uh, inflicting, I'm just picking out excerpts here, inflicting this kind of pain is something your customers, clients, and prospects want you to do, even if they don't know it. Explain what you mean when you say inflicting that kind of pain is something your customers, clients, and prospects want you to do, even if they don't know it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this this saying that we all know from from business that, that it's uh, over... Uh, what is it? Under promise and over deliver, right? Oh yeah, you said that was a, a big one in the marketing agency world. Yeah, I think that is well intentioned, but I think that gets people in a lot of trouble, right? It's this idea that no matter what a client wants you to do, you should run and jump and make them as happy as humanly possible all the time. And and while you want to make your clients happy, the problem with that is that people have whatever the, the, the you know business version of the hedonic treadmill is, if you make it the norm to over-deliver, that becomes the new set point. And eventually, there's going to be a time where you can no longer over-deliver, and they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, they just want more and more. More, 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 right? So imagine instead, if you challenged your clients to squirm in their skin a little bit and then relieve the tension for them. So Tom Peters is is great at this, right? The uh he was one of the he was really one of, I mean you have a show all about a certain segment of the business book market. There weren't really that many commercial business books before Tom Peters. They were mainly business school books. He he I forget what his books were, but they were they were all about like in Search uh, of Excellence. Yeah, in Search of Excellence, right? Mm-hmm. And he became the first like massively big sort of public business guru that was sold in airports and this and that. And if you go to one of his seminars, they pay good money, you know, companies will pay good money for 50 of their people to be in the audience. And he will call these people out. You know, he will just say, everything you're doing is wrong. You know, you've gotten so comfortable in what you're doing. And it's like a seduction when he starts finally giving you the answers and telling you some of the things you're doing right. It's like, oh, love me. This is wonderful. Maybe I'm not so awful after all, right? And you just want more. You want his love. And what we do is we fawn all over our clients instead. Now, I'm not saying under-deliver. I'm not saying do poor work. But what I'm saying is be a bit of a seducer. Um, Inject little doses of tension and discomfort into the equation and people will give you anything to relieve that tension and discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in uh, Seth Godin's recent book, The Practice, he talks about that quite a bit, about the, the importance of you're not going to get any change if you don't create tension. Exactly. Uh, and it also brought to mind the challenger sale idea of the you know, CEB. Gartner did all this research, and sh- they, they classified salespeople into uh, f- about six different categories. And the most successful ones were the ones that were challenging their customers, you know, in a, a, a respectful way, and they were doing it right, but they were clearly the ones creating the most uh, tension. And, and I want to say about that, I think that the challenger sales approach has gotten, and this is a good thing, it's gotten a lot of traction and it's gotten more popular. I think what happens is a lot of people do the challenger sale thing and then they get the client and they become, they forget everything they ever learned. They just run and jump like lunatics and they resent it the entire time. And why I'm saying this is that usually the best result isn't delivered. A lot of time the client is 
and this is nothing against the clients, but there's also often many layers in an organization if it's a B2B sale and they're trying to show their worth or show their expertise by asking for things or putting their ideas into the mix. And if you just run and jump and do it, you're not serving them all the time. Mm-hmm. And people forget that. They remember it in the sales process and they rem- they forget it in their service. Yeah, I remember when I was an assistant account executive <laughs> at uh, yeah. J. Walter Thompson uh, many, many years ago. And uh, the, my boss, a very wise guy, Brian McCabe, mm-hmm. he said, you know, and I was new to the business world and all that, and I was telling about something the client wanted, and he said, always remember there's a difference or always look to see if there's a difference between what they want and what they need. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I, that really, I took that to heart and it's, it's so, uh, it's so true. And having the courage to call it out overtly, I think is also very important. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about probably the most controversial thing, which is, uh, churches and religions. Uh, yeah. But it's not what you think. <laughs> you write that for many of us, maybe even most of us, this bleak reality is too difficult to accept. Earlier you had talked about life being inherently uncertain and so forth. For many of us, maybe even most of us, this bleak reality is too difficult to accept. It is one thing to go through hard times, but to go through hard times knowing there is nothing consistent on which we can rely feels unbearable. This presents an opportunity for the hype artist. If you are able to create something that appears solid and unchangeable, something that provides answers or comfort or guidance in every situation, no matter how hard things get, those you provide it to will follow you anywhere. Now, just to keep us out of trouble, (laughs) I want to read this one definition of a church, which is a church is an organized grouping whose members share a common identification based on a shared belief in a source of authority and certainty. So explain what you mean when you say that hype artists produce not only a Bible, but they create a church. Well, so I'm going to start with the Bible, because that's so applicable to your show, right? So you are sent countless business books every day of the week. And many of them are good. Many of them aren't so good. You make selections of who you're going to feature and who you're not. And some of them may not be a fit for my particular show. And and they may not be a fit, Right. right? However, there's this pervading view in the business world, especially in the sort of like world of services where you're not providing a, a, a concrete product, that if you have a book, it's going to automatically make you an authority and attract people to you. And I think that's only half right, right? So, you know, you see a lot of people writing these books that are very, they're just books, you know, many of them are good, but it's, I, I always use the joke title, Leadership Strategies for the 21st Century, you know, just one of these kind of like, business books. And then they wonder why they didn't get traction. What I would argue is that a book works much better to turn you into a bona fide expert when it's more like a Bible, when it is framed as a source of all authority. So again, I'll I'll use my example, seven habits of highly effective people. The, the, The implicit idea there is that there are seven things you can do. It's like 10 commandments. And if you do them and master them, you will be a highly effective person. Yeah, really specific. Yeah, and and it's marching orders. It's like people refer to that book. Like you'll see copies of that book dog-eared and falling apart because they've based their entire careers around that book. It's their Bible, Mm -hmm. right? And you hear the terms, begin with the end in mind, thou shall not kill, right? So, and and it's it's the same thing for for a church. I mean, you, you know, 
it's it's I don't know who started the American Marketing Association. I don't know who started, you know, these very uh, these these various sort of associations. But a lot of them were started by people with commercial interests or certification, the life coaching certification authorities, because if you can be known as not just a person who has a business, but who someone who is at the center of that entire world. I, you know, it's, I can tell you what it takes to be a business coach that is certified to be a business coach. That's how knowledgeable I am. So it's this idea that there's a place or a set of benchmarks or an organization that is ironclad, right? So Six Sigma was an example that was looked at as, as laws passed down by nature. It was created by a person. And you could even, if you made a mistake, you could say, but I followed that. But I followed Six Sigma a hundred percent. You heard that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if you know, an example I use in the book, there was a, um, a very famous, a guy who started one of the biggest entertainment uh, agencies in America who started out only representing golfers. And the thing he did that really set him, sent him into the stratosphere. He basically, since golf is a game that has handicaps and different courses that are of different levels of difficulty. He he created this um, ranking system for golfers, and it's like the de facto ranking system for golfers. And it's even had some controversy. There was one golfer who won the most games who wasn't highly ranked, and it came out that he wasn't represented by this guy's agency. But no one really you know, it was like a bump in the road. So this person is 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 like the Pope of golfing. And as a result, everyone wants to be part of his agency. So, you know, think about what you can do to, you know, both in, in writing books or, you know, instead of just going out and giving your service, is, is there a, is there a, a standard? Is there a, a set of practices with a name and, 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 a, and a structure, you know, best practices? Can you create sort of the measuring stick by which everyone else should be measured, especially if that doesn't exist. It's amazing how much power and leverage that gives you if you can yeah. do that. It's right. You write uh, to create your own Bible. Begin by writing down your own beliefs about the way the world works, and you go on to write. What matters most is that your followers perceive it is the key to unlocking every puzzle they will ever encounter in right. their work or in their lives. And uh, also, you write that uh, those who wish to amass influence must learn to traffic in the black and white. But let's talk about uh, church. And I, I have to ask you, you write that starting a church is the best growth – and we're using church in quotes, okay, folks? Yeah, Starting a so. church is the best growth hacking method ever invented. <laughs> Please explain. Well, the thing about churches not in quotes, right, yes. which have plenty of value – for a lot of people. But people in churches, especially in the early stages of a church, get more members, right? So they're part of a group and they go out and they literally evangelize and the church is self-sustaining. No one has to sell in a church. In other words, the person who started the church isn't the one bringing in new members. As a member of the church, there's an implicit understanding that you're responsible for bringing in new members. So a great example of that in the secular world is B, uh, BNI, the Business Networking Institute, right? Mm-hmm. It's this idea that you go there to network uh, uh, and 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 gain leads, but but there are a set of standards that if you don't make a certain amount of um, introductions and give a certain number of leads in a certain period of time, you're not really 
doing your job as a BNI member. And BNI has become one of these things. It should be a very kind of tactical, you know, organization. But people wear BNI pins. I mean, people who are into BNI are into BNI. That's mm-hmm. the center of their business life. And it's self-sustaining. The thing grows on its own merits. The guy who started BNI is not selling more BNI members. The members are selling more BNI members. Right. And uh, network level marketing. Uh, that, that's a that 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 is a church. I mean, when I so I remember when I was coming out of um, college, I needed money. I didn't know what to do, and a friend of mine who also needed money and bought in, he got me into a network level marketing thing, and I dropped five hundred bucks of money I didn't really have, and I quit very quickly. But I saw the people who were really into it, and I remember my friends and I who went we used to joke about this years later. We we saw a guy sitting at a bar. And I forget the name of the leader of um, this company, but they, they said, oh, he's coming. He's coming. I said, oh, yeah. And he says, he oozes integrity out of every pore is what, what he said. Like like they were talking about Mother Teresa or the Pope, you know? And I was like, this is crazy. Like these people really are true believers in this yeah. thing selling long distance service. <laughs> right. But, you know, and you talk about it throughout the book, you are – Showing examples of companies or organizations that tap into the way people are and what they aspire to. And I can see how certain people that are really into um, certain things well, – I'll give an example. This may upset some folks, but some people I know who are just obsessed with uh, politics. Yeah. It's almost like that's filling some unmet religion need for them. No doubt. Bands do it for people. Yeah, bands or sports teams. Yeah, sports teams. Yeah, I also think that there's nothing wrong. I mean, for for you notice, I didn't mention whether the service that this network marketing thing did was good or bad. You know, I'm just saying that they generated that level of dedication. There's nothing wrong with generating that level of dedication. In other words, I mean, I'll admit it. When I think of David Bowie, who I think is the greatest human, he like strikes me as like a demigod. You know. Mm And I wouldn't give Given that your up. glam rock heritage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, seriously, right? I mean, yeah, you can imagine. But what I'm saying is, but there are products that do that for me. I, I remember thinking it really funny. I used to work in this um, Brooklyn writer's space where, uh, it, you know, really good writers because Brooklyn has a lot of writers. But, you know, it, it was the kind of audience that like, and I love these people, but, you know, a lot of kale for lunch, a lot of uh, – you know, not much makeup. I mean, it was this idea like we're not consumerists. We're, we're you know, we're, you know, but there were zero PCs in this workspace. Zero. All Macs. All right. Great example. Yeah. Mac, Apple. Everyone. Yeah. So it's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's, they've created this. I mean, think about their commercial with the Mac guy and the PC guy. It wasn't like you were just buying a better computer or an easier to use computer. You were buying the Mac lifestyle. You were Justin Long, now not the fat guy with the mustache. And that was also picking a fight. A hundred percent picking a fight. That's yeah. exactly, I mean, and, you know, <clears throat> the thing to say, these strategies, I've made them distinct strategies, but they all overlap and flow into one another. Yes. Yes. They all, they all mix in. Well, uh, just so you know, I've given a lot of thought to myself and my business and my future in reading this book. And I think I, if I were to start a religion, and I want some feedback from the listeners, it's not the Church of Scientology, you know, which was founded by L. Ron Hubbard. I'm thinking about starting the Church of Marketology. I, I'll be, I'll be there. See I'll, what I did I'll, there. I, I will attend those services, and then I, I will rebrand myself, not using my first name but my middle name, Norwood. I'll then be D. Norwood <laughs> Burdett. 
That is like the greatest cult leader name ever. L. Ron Especially Hubbard? A, like a, well, it's like a 19th century cult leader name. Yes. D. Norwood Burnett. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, uh, although I don't think this is going to happen because I, I would really be worried about somebody joining a church that I would start. So, <laughs> like the Gratio Marx, I wouldn't join. I would join no club that would have me as a member. You're better than most. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, the last thing I want to have uh, to ask. I know we've gone a bit longer, but hey, you know, I bought a bunch of extra audio tape today at Costco. So <laughs> why not? Good. Yeah, you don't want to burn through that audio tape. Yet. Yeah, yeah. So this last part, and this real, this part really did have some implications for some ideas I had for my own business. So uh, what I want you to do is explain the following quote, promoting the idea of fulfillment, success, or salvation through toil is the cheapest and most efficient way for a hype artist to get others to spread their message for them. And then uh, the next page you write, by fetishizing hard work, hype artists bind their followers to them even more tightly. Explain what's going on here. Your listeners are consumers of uh, material in this sort of like personal development slash business space. And it's no surprise that in that space, there's just a lot of gurus who relentlessly talk to their followers in in very harsh terms almost about that they're not working hard enough, that the only way to be successful is to work, 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 work. And listen, no one ever became successful being lazy. But it, I, I asked myself the question, why, why are these people so relentless about hammering their followers about working hard, like as if that's going to solve all their problems. And what I realized, I did a little bit of research and cults and religions, um, not all religions, but like culty type religions uh, have, have used this tactic for ages. You know, there, there, there was this guy, uh, Gurdjieff, who's a guru that some people still follow, but he would uh, get movie stars to come to his compound and dig and do all the housework, you know, all the yard work and, and dig holes to nowhere it, because he said it was like salvation through toil. But what was really going on there was beyond the fact that he got his work done for free, um, he – if you work like a dog on behalf of a cause and then you start to have doubts about that cause, there's a concept called cognitive dissonance where you can't hold two contradictory thoughts in your head at the same time, or at least it's very difficult to. So you'll just double down and you'll say, well, you know, I'm not I, working I hard actually, enough. I'm not working hard enough. I actually believe more deeply in, in this, yes. in this thing, you know? So I, I guess the question to ask is when you look, also it's a good way, you know, a lot of these cults, you, the hard work they're supposed to do is to go out and evangelize on behalf of, of, of their, of their thing. So they go out and they spend 65 hours a week converting other people. So, you know, when you see these um, gurus uh, screaming at people to work harder, ask yourself, are their followers getting richer by working harder or is the guru getting richer? Now, there is an ethical way to use this dynamic, which is what this is all about. And it's about creating. So let's say you're selling, let's say you own a marketing agency. This is just one example, right? Um, you know, you own a marketing agency, you're doing all the work for your clients. And that's an okay model. It's fine. The problem sometimes, though, is that if you get more clients, you need to hire more people. Uh, it's that people become 
quickly adapted, as we said before, to the level of work you're delivering and want more. Mm -hmm. But imagine if you create a a kind of half-do-it-yourself dynamic where people attend classes once a month, you give them the frameworks, you coach them, but they have to go out and implement. I assure you that those people will be, from class to class, if they don't do the work, they'll be apologizing that they didn't do the work and ready to pay you more money. So if you can create a dynamic where people actually benefit by doing part of the work themselves instead of relying on you to do everything, not only is it sometimes better for them because it's like give a man a fish instead of a, a you know, give a man a fishing pole instead of a fish, yeah. it will bind them more closely to you and make them more sort of addicted customers or clients. Right. And that's why what you had on page 161, I think I may have to carve in stone just for my own business, it says, if you can find ways to put your clients and customers to work implementing your ideas rather than always doing the implementing for them, they will keep coming back for more. And I know from personal experience that when we've done all the work for a client and it devolves into, yeah, just leave leave it at the loading dock, it's like the body rejects the transplanted organ. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why there was another book, which is one of my favorites. It's been on the show twice, actually, for the first and second edition is Marcus Sheridan's They Ask You Answer. And in the se- he's in the agency business, just like you and I are. Yeah. In the second edition, he explained that what I had discovered as well, never as fast as Marcus does, that unless we can get the client to start changing their culture, to start doing more of this themselves, it really never works. I, I could not agree more. It, it Because they're you know, you become a crutch. Yeah, just to do that stuff. But it has to be baked in. I mean, you could say that this marketing has gone from plastic surgery to internal medicine because marketing now has so much more to do with the way you run your company and the way you sell than necessarily what what you say, and people don't really believe what what companies say anyway. So when I saw what happened with Ted Cruz, right? He went on a vacation to Cancun. I know this is political, and he got photographed, and well, he, he went when there was a, you know, a big snowstorm and power outage. Right, yeah. I know. But what I'm saying is, I'm not going to comment on whether I think that was good or bad. That's not the point. My point is, if the things you're saying in public are not consistent with the way you behave, because his whole big thing, he always goes around telling people they aren't working hard in Congress, you know, and all of that. But the fact that he was inconsistent in his practice with that, for better or worse, it went viral very quickly. And I think that's what happens with businesses now. You can no longer slap ads everywhere and be inconsistent in your business practice. So if you're an agency and you're not arming people to execute in real life using their own work with what you're advertising for them, it's ultimately going to fail. Word's going to get out. It's it's like a big-ass continuity error in a movie. <laughs> that's a hundred. That's a perfect way to describe it. Exactly. So anyway, I, I, I've been kind of going in this direction and I'm just thinking, you know, we, we they, they want stuff. Clients want stuff, but I, I know how it ends, you know, and unless they exactly. can uh, maybe start to do some of it on their own and, and, and it, it just doesn't work. But anyway, that's a, that's a hill to climb for another day. So and it's related. It is related. It really is. Yeah. yeah. So it really resonated with me and I, uh, I appreciate that, and I also can think of a lot of marketers who might be listening who are perceived as, uh, just go make me a PowerPoint or just right. make me some brochures, do this sort of thing, and it's driving the marketers nuts because there's so much, so many other things they could be doing. And that they think it's valuable. like a, yeah, yeah, they think, oh, I got a marketer. Uh, it's like, I got a photocopy machine. You know, it's like, right. <laughs> so. Give it, give it to the marketer. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Michael F. Shine, if readers <laughs> took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would say that if you're trying to better yourself, if you're a student of marketing and sales, it's really good to be a student of marketing and sales and read the books and take the courses. And there's a lot of value in them. At the same time, pay attention to what the gurus behind these books and courses are teaching and what they're actually doing. Because in certain cases, what they're teaching is is really what they want people to learn. But in certain cases, what they're teaching is because they know that's what's going to have the effect of getting them more customers and clients and building more hype. And sometimes it's at odds with what they actual do, actually do. So be, be cognizant of that. Look at the actual hype activities that these gurus are putting out there versus what they're preaching. And sometimes you might want to emulate their hype activities instead of what they're teaching in their courses and books. Yes, let me just add to that. What's one paragraph from the end where you write, put down the marketing and sales books, period. Forget about the build a nine-figure online business courses. Instead, seek out and study the real masters. When you learn from the true artists of mass manipulation, then you can build the business or company or following or movement you want and name your price for whatever it is you're selling. Now, I do have to disclose that when you – I underlined where it said put down the marketing and sales books, and I've written – just listen to the marketing book podcast. So if you know, I, I was being a little gentle because in the way I put that across, because I am on the marketing book podcast. Yes, I mean, yes. Well, and I, yeah. I've brought it up. So when you do that second edition, you know, just uh, if you could put that, just think about putting that in. But um, no, in, in all seriousness, though, I do want to say there are a lot, and I'm not just saying this because I'm in, on the show. I've read tons of marketing and sales books, and some of them are fantastic, you know. But also, some of them aren't written by gurus. There's a difference between just a marketing book writer and a guru who has a massive following. And you just have to look at the differences. You just have to be aware that it's not always the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is just one thing a listener could do today uh, to to put in action one of the ideas from your book or maybe one that we've talked about? I would I would immediately go out and ask yourself the question, or even better, get a friend or colleague to ask you the question. What's a point of view? in your corner of the universe, in your industry, in your field, whatever, that is just accepted as truth, is accepted unquestioningly, that you secretly disagree with. So, you know, because I, I think that a lot of times that's where the contrarian view and that's where everything else flows. It's, it's, you know, everyone is saying, um, marketing is about calls to action and you secretly think that maybe, calls to action haven't really served you well, and you've done much better when you focused on personal relationships. Well, maybe the seed of your unique point of view that leads to your persona, to your new business idea, to your benevolent hype is in that. Because it's certainly not in what everyone else is saying. That is such great advice. And I have to, again, disclose something to you. On page 10, in the column, I wrote, don't get me started. And here's, <laughs> here's what got me to, to write that. Ask yourself the following two questions. What point of view do you often encounter in your field that is so wrong-headed that it literally makes you angry? And what point of view in your field are you 100% unshakably confident in? 
Get clear on your answers to these questions. Spend as long as you need to figure it out. Write your answers down on note cards and tape them above your desk. That that lit my fuse. I'll tell you that. So it's, it's that's important. Great it's really advice. Important. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, because I got to write that Bible, you know, and I got to. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's where, that's where I'm going to start. So, uh, Michael F. Shine, what books have most inspired your rather interesting <laughs> work and career? I mean, I'm a, I'm a big reader. I mean, not just the business books. I read a lot of business books, but I was a writer before I was a business person. So I read everything from from business books to history to uh, fiction, you know, to everything in between. But I think two books that um, were really pivotal for me. One is a book called The Click Moment by Franz Johansson. Um, he he ended up becoming a client of theirs of ours, which was a big honor for me because I was a fan of his stuff first. But he's more well known for a book called The Medici Effect, which is really good too. But this book, The Click Moment, basically says that it's back to this pattern seeking that that human beings, in retrospect, always think they had a plan for what they did and that it worked out according to a strategy. But there's so much randomness in the world that you have to have a mechanism for using randomness to your advantage to succeed. So he has this idea of the uh, taking bets and 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 making uh, the smallest executable step. So he'll say like, you know. Um, you should always have a part of your day or your week where you're doing experiments, just following your interest, not even your commercial, you know, imperative, where you're just doing small experiments. And then if you see traction, if you see people volunteering their time, if you see people saying, how much does that cost? Then you put more resources into it. And and I've just followed that advice with everything I've done. I mean, from the fact that with clients, we do everything in sprints. So even if I, I know how to do quote unquote marketing, we're, there's always an element of allowing for the capture of serendipity and, and allowing that our hypotheses might, might be wrong. And we also have in our company something called the Creative Lab, where I and anyone that you know works for us or with us um, gets to spend a little of their time doing a little side project. You know, hmm. So that was a big influence on me. Um, and another book is a book called The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon, which is from 1895, I think. And it was the first book of crowd psychology. And in, in some ways, it inspired this book because I was um, in, on a business trip on my bed on, on top of the duvet in a hotel room. And it was like the first Trump debate where he was like against 17 people. And I was reading this book about these mobs in Paris, you know, 200 years earlier, 150 years earlier or whatever. And he was talking about how crowds behave irrationally and how they follow certain leaders for irrational reasons. And it was like everything he was saying, Trump was on the screen doing. And this was when everyone thought he would lose. And I was like, this is weird. Like, this is fascinating. There's something here. Yes, I remember that from the book you mentioned. Yeah. So that's also just a great book. I mean, there's a wealth of knowledge in there. Interesting, interesting. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading or seeing come out? Yeah, this isn't a uh, business book, but um, well, it's yeah, I said any books. So any, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's called Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson. So um, Kurt Anderson's a really great writer. Uh, he 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 started Spy Magazine, um, which was like a humor magazine in the oh, 80s. Oh, yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah, Studio 360. He's written novels. He's written all kinds of stuff. But essentially, this book is all about how we got to our, our present moment, a history of America, but through the lens of the United States having this weirdly unique culture where we are basically, we have fantasy 
baked into our marrow. Like if you think about who founded the country in the South, uh, the original, this isn't talked about a lot because they ended up growing tobacco, but the original uh, settlers of Jamestown, they were trying to find El Dorado. They were trying to find gold. (laughs) And and, um, in the North, the Puritans were religious separatists, not not the Puritans, the pilgrims were, were Puritans that were so extreme that the Puritans in England kicked them out. So these were like people leaving to create this like fantasy land. And we see it over and over again. We're, we're the only country in history who has, we have a major city um, founded around gambling and another one founded around theme parks. Uh, There's just all this crazy. We have this like fantasy impulse baked into our, our, our cultural DNA and, and what we're seeing now um, in his mind is really a, uh, it reaching its logical head, but it's also a lot of the great stuff about America. I mean, no other country said we're going to put you know people on the moon, and then did it. Right, so, right. Yeah. Wow, that sounds really interesting. I'm yeah, definitely really going to have to to read yeah. that one. So. Uh, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, all the books you've mentioned and your uh, company site and your um, and your LinkedIn profile so uh, listeners can connect with you. And thank you for joining us on the show. And for you, dear listener, if you've enjoyed this interview and you found it helpful, please reach out to Michael and thank him for being a guest. I guarantee it'll really make his day. Uh, the, the past guests really enjoy hearing from the listeners. And uh, if you're listening on your smartphone and you have subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes. Final quote. While there are already plenty of people who understand how to use the ideas in this book to sell garbage, I have a lot of hope. If these strategies can be used to push that which deceives and degrades, imagine what can happen if more and more people apply them to work that enhances and enriches. Hype artists may see the world as it really is, but the best of them use that knowledge to make it better. Now that you know their secrets, I hope you'll join their ranks. The name of the book is The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. The author is Michael F. Shine. Michael, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, LinkedIn, where business is done. Every marketing campaign starts with one simple question. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? The answer is LinkedIn. To get a $100 advertising credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign, visit linkedin.com slash marketingbook. That's linkedin.com slash marketingbook. Terms and conditions apply. And speaking of LinkedIn, since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you're in, invite me to connect with you on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.